Hey everyone, welcome to A Wife Like Me. This is so fun. I'm so excited for our new friend. You know how excited I get about new friends. Um, because I feel like you're excited too, right? Even though we're not in the same room, uh, I feel like when I'm excited, you're excited. So this is going to be great. We have our friend Hillary Morgan Ferrer with us, and she has her book out, Mama Bear Apologetics, which is that's probably how you've heard of her already. She's probably not new to you, but Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality, Empowering Your Kids to Understand and Live Out God's Design. Hello, we need this book. Hillary, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. Uh, you co-wrote, we were just chatting, you co-wrote a mm-hmm. book with Amy Davison, who I mm-hmm. do not know. So I feel like I should meet her too, because her name is cool. And yes, <laughs> it's just so, she's fabulous. It's so rare that I see Davison as the last name uh, instead of Davison. Yep. So anyway, that's super fun. But why don't you just introduce yourself to the all of us? Because maybe there's some of us that aren't familiar with who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Hillary Ferrer. And so um, I grew up in a Christian home. I discovered apologetics when I was 12. And I, I mean, I was just obsessed with the church and with Jesus and loving the Lord. But when I discovered apologetics, I felt like, oh, my gosh, this isn't something I believe just because my parents said so or because my pastor said so. This is something I can talk about kind of almost in a in an intellectual academic way, or I can talk about this with non-Christians, even if they don't believe anything that I have to say, this gives me a way to talk about it in a way that says, hey, maybe this is true, not because someone says it is, but because we can check out these claims. So people ask what apologetics is. And so apologetics is just basically um, making a case for why you believe something to be true. And so I say everybody is an apologist for something. I like using my mom as the classic example. She is the number one apologist for the Instant Pot. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot go for five minutes without talking with her without hearing why the Instant Pot is basically the greatest invention of all time. She's kind of moved on to the air fryer now as well. But she has all sorts of reasons. Uh, Same with my husband. He has all sorts of reasons why certain bands are just objectively the best kind and anyone i'm sure all your husbands have some sports team that they will like go head to head with some other guy of why this is the best sports team but that's what it means to be an apologist is to not only believe in something but you have specific reasons that you can discuss and that you can debate and you can figure out is this a true claim or not for why you believe something to be true so um i got into apologetics and i found that uh, i like to say you know faith in jesus christ saved my life, but apologetics saved my faith. That with as many things as I've gone through in my life, just uh, from struggling a lot lot with depression and anxiety when I was younger, uh, my mom's cancer, my sister's cancer, (laughs) which uh, she died, passed away from um, actually right after this book was written. Uh, My own cancer times two, like not having kids, all these different things would give me a reason to say, God, where are you? You don't exist. I'm, you know, I'm done with this. But because of what I know through apologetics, um, I never had the option to walk away from the faith. And so it just, it just was never an option. I couldn't unknow what I knew. Uh, and so several years ago, God gave me just this burning, yearning out of nowhere because I've never, I've never been involved in women's ministry. I've always kind of been a daddy's girl and involved with a lot of guy stuff. 
Um, but just this passion for equipping moms, because I think moms are the apologist in the house for their kids. Y'all get the most questions early on. And it's like, it doesn't matter what it is. Kids go to mom first. Your husband could be sitting in the living room and your child needs to get the cap off of something. You're in the bathroom, shaving your legs in the bathtub. The kid will come to the shaving the legs mom in the bathtub before they go to dad because mom is just who you go to for questions. Mm. Um, and so who's getting the spiritual questions first? That would be moms. Um, and uh, so our first book was about uh, countering cultural lies, basically things that would undermine kids' abilities to, to, to have faith in Christ. And the second book was one that I never wanted to write. And I kind of got you know hooked into this. And I'm really glad I did because I think, honestly, there was a lot of fear for me was just seeing how um, complicated and how political and how everything that sexuality has gotten. And so, um, yeah, so I, I felt like, yeah, I didn't want to do it at first, but I'm so thankful that I did because I feel like I was able to really unwrap a lot of those knots for myself to understand what's going on. And then as I learned it and as I understood it, I was able to do it in a way so that parents could understand it and then they could explain it to their kids, which is the entire purpose of Mama Bear Apologetics is to uh, equip the moms to train their child. Mm, so good. And that's exactly what this book is. The guide to sexuality. Okay. So you were learning, you just said you were learning all these things that were like, whoa, 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 that and that, that. <laughs> here, what are some of the things that you learned that, yeah, like go anywhere you want? Yeah. Okay. Anywhere I want. So one of the things that I wanted to look at is how sexuality had gone from being a moral issue, a biblical issue to a political issue. Mm. Uh, and not only that, but how had it become where we have Christian kids who are now advocating for something that they would have never advocated for 20 years ago, back when we were, back when we were, I don't, well, I don't know how old you are, back when I was in high school, you know, yeah. 25. Okay, so we're, you know, mostly contemporaries. Um Back probably when you and I were in high school, if we were a strong Christian, we were at least called what? Goody goodies? I don't know. I wasn't a Christian. So what okay. well, Christians back yeah, in that time goody. were called goody goodies. Yeah. But the thing is that that has completely changed. You have to agree on the definition of good to even call someone a goody goody. What kids are being told now is that for their Christian beliefs, they are hateful, hurtful, abusive monsters, yeah. oppressors. Um, and that's a whole different level of peer pressure. So uh, we really needed to go into what has changed in culture to where it's like sin's not even considered sin. It's more like sin is considered freedom. And anyone who would deny that is actually an oppressor. And then they'll take this concept of oppression and take it back to scripture and say, Jesus came to free the oppressed. Your Bible says to love like Jesus loved. And now it's uh, they're changing the definition of love in order to say to affirm someone's identity. And so our Christian kids are being told, why aren't you loving like Jesus loved? Uh, and we have to also look at the number of kids they're starting to identify on the on the LGBTQ plus spectrum that it's gone from, uh, you know, I guess, you know, 30 years ago, it was like maybe 2%. And now it's almost like, 30 and 40% of either um, millennials or Gen Z's, I think that is starting Gen Z's under 18, like 40% are starting to identify under this umbrella. What in the world happened 
in the last 20, 30 years that would cause this. And so a lot of that, uh, we I had to do a really deep dive into critical theory, which really links into a lot of Marxism, Marxist thought, uh, cultural Marxism. Um, but critical theory is this concept that everything is looked at in terms of who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. So if you go to just classical Marxism, it, uh, their, their version of oppressed and oppressed is, you know, the haves and the have nots. Most people who've studied any kind of, you know, uh, economics have heard of this. The haves and the have nots. It was the business owners and the workers. So that's what a classic Marxism was about. What we have now is the haves and have nots in terms of social power. So social power, who has more social power? The people with the social power are able to oppress and marginalize. Marginalize is a really hotbed term right now. Who's the marginalized community? Um, who's being oppressed and who's being marginalized? And our goal supposedly, according to critical theory, as a society is to identify who is the most marginalized? And then we need to ally with them. And to ally with them, oh golly, Amy has these four words. It's like um, affirm, advocate, um, promote, and something something else. I can't remember. It's like you have to basically sit down, be quiet, uplift their voices, um, and allow them to, what they say, is speak about their own oppression. They are now the authority on this. And so what we have is, what do you think kids in high school and middle school are longing for the most? They're longing for uh, to be heard, to be noticed, to be different, to be popular. Um, and so we have this way of, if you had a way, think, I don't know if you were bullied when you were, <laughs> when you were younger. Okay. So like I had people that picked on me. I was, I was not one of the popular kids. I, randomly, I was friends with a lot of popular kids, but like when we got in a group, I was just not, not one of the group. Um, but if I had a guaranteed way that every single teacher and every single student was now going to be looking out for me, anyone who tried to mess with me, everybody would have my back. How tempting would it be? And that is what we're seeing happen with youth right now that all they have to do is identify as LGBTQ somewhere on that spectrum. And suddenly they can change things that they couldn't uh, otherwise change. Like say, if they were a white male, they are at the very top line of who the oppressor is. And if you can become the oppressed, suddenly you now have a space to sit at the table. You have a voice. People are trying to uplift your voice. Uh, In fact, one of the studies that we looked at in the Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality is the parents of kids who were going through some kind of social transition uh, for transgenderism, 60% reported a boost in popularity for their child. Wow. So this is something that we could, we could look at all the verses in the world. We could look at sin for as long as we wanted to, you know, what does it mean to have different desires? If we don't understand the culture in which this is starting to flourish, we don't understand what is happening with our kids. This is not just an issue of, I want what I want and, you know, sex feels good and I want to do it. We are so far past that if it feels good, do it. And we are now into looking at the national sex education standards, saying that a healthy sexuality is one where you've tried on all these different identities and uh, sexual exploration is not exempt from this. To where it's kind of if you were to boil it down, it's that you can't knock it till you try it. You don't know who you are. 
until you try that on. And this is coming from the curricula. Yeah. Um, telling the kids, and I'm thinking, if that's healthy sexuality, how did we all turn out so normal? Like, were yeah. we just doing it wrong all these millennia before that we just did not know what was going on? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so kids are getting it from every, they're getting it from culture, they're getting it from media. In some cases, they're getting it from church, mm-hmm. where churches are being scared to stand up and say, um, this is not what God, this is, this, this is not biblical. This is not with God's design and the, the desire to love people who are hurting has trumped loving God with all our minds, souls, and bodies. Mm. Um, so they're getting it from school and they're even getting it from the adults. At what point in society can you remember where the peer pressure was coming from the adults? Right, yeah, right. Never, never before. We are in a completely different society right now. Yeah. That's so important to think about the, the social status change. Mm-hmm. For yeah. our kids when it comes to their sexuality. I, I think there's a level, they would feel a level of protection almost. Um, or uh yeah, celebration, protection that comes with that identity that is very, like you say, very mm-hmm. tempting. And we like you say too, we could throw all the Bible verses at them. We could talk about sin all day, all night. But if we do that and do not understand the the biggest pull for them being there. So, I mean, I, I taught psychology for years at a, at a college. Their biggest need right now is their identity. They're, they're searching yes. for identity and that is the age they are at. And so mm-hmm. for somebody in the, at their age to say, I could like, the, if I, ch- if that's my identity, this is what, cu- it's like a package. You want package A, package B, package C. Yeah. You know, it's like the prices are, it's like, which one are you going to choose? And knowing that that choice comes with all these benefits as, as older people, as this gener, in our generation, older, whatever, mm-hmm. we need to understand that that's really, really helpful. That's really good. Yeah. So I would say that was kind of some of my biggest takeaways there. And that's where it's like, I had to just untangle all of that and then be able to, how do we weave this back into the concept of what scripture says? How do we weave this back into the concept of authority? And then how we weave this back into the things that kids are struggling most uh, with most, which would be um, just the sex positivity, which we can go into later, uh, same sex attraction, transgenderism um, and pornography. Mm, I would like to talk about them. (laughs) where do you want to start i guess with all those topics how do we approach them with our kids okay so one of the things that i think is really really great so what what are my other favorite chapters i don't know maybe they're all my favorite i love this sounds so bizarre someone's going to take a sound clip of this i love the pornography oh that's a good Uh, one I know. And the reason why I love the pornography chapter is because I'm a science nerd. Um, but I think the pornography chapter kind of serves double duty in the sense that so Fred, chapter one really talks about what is the biblical basis. And I think I could have gone even further as we're doing a study in Revelation right now. Um, the number of times it's like I need to get onto the Logos software and find out how many times is sexual immorality mentioned in Revelation. It's probably going to be more than any other book in the body or book in the Bible, maybe except Leviticus, but maybe even more than that, um, that uh, sexual immorality is this huge deal. So um, that's kind of this historical idea. 
that our sexuality is historically how we've been set apart as a people. Like this is how we were, this was one of the ways that we represented God. And so and I, I want to talk about this later, this, yeah, you know, maybe the concept of what have, what have we been missing when we're talking about sexuality with our kids. Um, but if you want to deal with something that uh, your kids, whether or not they follow Jesus or not, something that they can understand, we can weave the concept of God's good design physically in with what is going on with pornography. Cause I, one of the, one of the things that I give in there, one of the, the, um, tips I say for especially dealing with boys that, uh, uh have you noticed just like a proliferation of all these, um, erectile dysfunction pill medication advertisements? Well, it's like an addiction to pornography leads to erectile dysfunction to the point that doctors are starting to say, hold on, what the heck is going on? Why do I have 18 and 19 year old boys coming in with erectile dysfunction? Like this has never been seen before. And so even if your child does not want to listen to the idea that they're degrading themselves, they're degrading someone else, they're filling their mind with darkness, all these other things, here's the spiritual ramifications. Even if they don't want to deal with anything else, you can deal with them on something that they will listen to. Do you want to get erectile dysfunction in your late teens and early 20s to where even if you wanted to be with a real woman, you couldn't be? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, in this chapter, we go through basically this amazing design of our bodies, of how God created us. Created us. And so if you have little ears that are listening right now, you might want to yeah. <laughs> might want to put this on pause for a second because we're going to talk about some adult things. Um, so the concept of orgasm is actually so important. So like I grew up in a church where the pastor says, we serve such a good God. We serve the God who created the orgasm. It's not like he was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was going to happen when they got together. We serve the God who said, this is a good thing. And so if we want to look at the chemical cascade that happens from orgasm and the chemicals that are released in the male body, in the female body, and what the psychological aspects are to that. It really is this bonding agent that, um, I'll put it in simpler words, it's one of these things that makes you feel bonded to someone in such a way that you are, it's easier to overlook, we'll say, things in them because you already feel so bonded. And the more bonded you feel with somebody, the more you're willing to overlook flaws. So I'll ask you, Amanda, have you known girls or guys who have been in a relationship and everybody is like, what the heck are you thinking? This person treats you so badly. They are so clearly wrong for you. Or it's like, we call it love dumb. It's like, why do you think this is a great thing? Well, a lot of times that can be a sign that there is sexual activity going on because they are bonded with this person on this chemical level to where they will overlook all these things that they shouldn't overlook. What an amazing gift within marriage though, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. This is exactly like if someone says, I have a tonic for you. When you take it, the stuff that bothers you about your husband is just not going to bother you as badly. You could market that and you could sell that and everybody would take yeah. that. that. That is essentially what we have happening when we experience orgasm with someone. Now, the problem with this is, especially within pornography, is that these were bonds that were not intended to be broken. So... The more times that we create this bond and then break this bond, the body actually gets used to the bond breaking process. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever heard someone say, I can't imagine being with the same person for the rest of my life, um, that is not an empowered statement. That is a lament. 
that their body does not know how to bond anymore. Mm-hmm. Or what they're bonding to, and it, it's like your orgasm kind of trains you what to crave. Now, what we would love to do if is if we said every time we make love, every time we have sex with our spouse, it's training us to seek out the person who has been associated with that orgasm. That is a wonderful way to keep marriages together. But what if your experience of orgasm is either a 2D image? This is where sometimes you'll see uh, certain porn stars get stalked by guys because if a guy is like really into just one particular porn star, um, he can feel like they have this bond that they don't have. Or if they're just, you know, dabbling with a bunch of different porn stars, they're getting used to variety. Now, within marriage, you don't have... It's the same person every time. And so if you're training yourself to crave variety, that is actually impeding your ability to have a bond within the marital covenant because you're training yourself to need novelty. You're training yourself to need something different. And what happens with pornography addiction is that uh, since they're engaging in it so much more, it's a lot easier to get, we'll say, than having an actual person have sex with, you know, they can, they can do things, you know, six, eight times, maybe more, I don't know, uh, for someone who's really addicted a day where you'd never be able to do that with a single person. Um, they're starting to have the addiction process where what used to cause kind of a euphoric high isn't working as much. Basically, we have receptors in our brains that say, we'll get excited about this. And when you have it overflooded too much, they're like, I guess we don't need so many receptors. Now it takes more and more and more in order to get that same level of high. And so this is where we see pornography start going down the road of either violence, sometimes different demographics. And this is, you know, when you hear stories of people who have really gone down the dark way, all of a sudden the only thing left is this tab, whatever taboo is left. Sometimes that's children. Um, But I think teaching our kids God's good design in terms of this is what sex does this is the way it bonds. These are the chemicals that's released. This is what happens when that bond is broken. Is this something that you want to do? Is this going to be healthy for you in your future? And for guys, um, do, do you want to basically have problems being with a real woman? No guy wants to have that. So I think it helps reinforce God's good design at the same time with teaching them why pornography is not a healthy thing. If we just want to go physiologically before we even go theological. On that's this. such a good point. Because what you, that very last statement, we need to go physiologically before we go theologically. Because mm-hmm. too, I think with what we often have done is not, we just go theologically first. Mm-hmm. And so then while that can, while that is all, I feel like that's true. That's good. Yep, it's good. It's also though ignoring a, a huge part of what the, of the what's going on right yeah um, I, well it's assuming that the person is motivated by theological stuff and that's something that may come really far down the road in someone's spiritual maturity yeah it's like being motivated by the things that god it's like, I, mean, I mean you just think about just classical you know raising up children developmental milestones you can't talk with a four-year-old and make motivate them to not want to steal the cookie. You have to spank the hand or the, you know, whatever to say, no, mama has said mm-hmm. not to do that. You have to have things because before they can really understand and be motivated by other things, they just have to have boundaries yeah. um, in the first place. And they have to understand it. I'm thinking of my addict friends who, you know, if I mm-hmm. came to them and I, you know, 
just told them like, this is sinful. This is, you know, not using your body. I mean, I could say the same exact, very similar, right? Argument of like the body you have, like God gave you, it is good and beautiful. And the way that you're treating your body by using this is, you know, damaging what God has created and whatever I could, right? I could talk to them Mm -hmm. about that. And though, if I do that, that's helpful, but also it'd be ignoring the very actual fact that there is already potentially a physiological mm-hmm. addiction, desire, need yep. that, uh, because then without addressing that for any kiddo who's already dabbled in pornography, mm-hmm. then what's, what they're going to hear is then my theological, what I know to be true about God isn't enough. Because why yeah. can't I stop then? And I think it also introduces shame. Yeah. If I can't be properly motivated by loving God and I still struggle with this, ooh, oh, that God. spirit of shame yeah. moves in. And that spirit of shame is what pe- keeps people in bondage longer yeah. than any of the other actual addiction. Yes, I think. we have to be, as Christians, as the body, I think we can grow immensely in this knowledge of understanding the actual addiction. And yes. be very honest with our kids about that. I love that, you know, you're not ignoring either, but you're saying like as a whole picture, let's talk about it um, and give them the whole picture up front so that they're not surprised or, I mean, honestly mad that we didn't tell them because yeah. we knew, you and, know? Yeah. I would say bringing back this back to apologetics um, for those who are still kind of learning what apologetics is. All this stuff that I just described, the physiological reaction of basically how it enforces God's design and it is not, does not lead to human wellness, uh, when it's, when it's disregarded. That itself is an apologetic. That's me saying, I have reasons for why I advocate for God's design. Now, not everything is just going to be, you know, practical, you know, like just because it works that, that means it's true. It's not the case, but this is additional reasons that the Lord has given us for his design. It's not just because I said so, because I think a lot of times, and this is where some of our churches are getting confused, this idea, I don't think we really understand what sex is and what's it, what it's intended to be from a theological perspective. So it seems like male and female is just as arbitrary as if God had chosen male and male or female and female, that it's an arbitrary thing. Um, and it's not. And this is what's called natural law. Natural law is when God has an actual moral law that plays out in the physical realm where you have actual physiological or physical consequences from breaking a moral law because it's also built into the fabric of reality. And that's one of the other things I say about um, why, why am I a Christian? Why do I love Christianity? What's one of the greatest apologetics for Christianity? And I think it's that the fact that the Christian worldview matches reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reinforces reality. And we see this, especially in the air of, uh, in the area of sexuality, where there was a study, um, I'm getting off, a little bit off topic, but I think this is really important. I actually found this study after we published the book and I wish I'd found it before. Um, so can you, can you tell me, I'll, I'll see if you know, like one of the things that people are always saying that we need to be especially loving for LGBT because they have an X percentage of increased suicide risk. Have you heard oh, yeah, that? I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to say, okay, so what they're blaming that on is saying it's because we have a society that is not accepting. If only we had a society that was accepting, we would see these suicidalities go down. So I decided to ask the question, what is the number one most accepting society in the world? And so I just kind of looked it up. I don't know if the 
website I went to was, you know, the most legit, but it was Norway. And so then I went specifically to um, Google Scholar, which has just a database of all the different um, peer-reviewed articles in science. And I looked specifically for a Norwegian study on the suicidality rates among LGBT. And what they actually showed was very, very interesting. It went beyond what I was even asking for. It looked at um, a couple of different groups. It was all, it was all adolescents. Um, so probably nobody that would have been married to begin with. Yeah. Um, and it, it looked at suicidality rates among heterosexuals who were not engaging in, in, in um, heterosexual sexual activity. It then looked at um, same-sex same sex attracted who were not engaged in sexual activity. Then heterosexuals who were engaged in sexual activity. And then same-sex who were also engaged in same-sex uh, sexual activity. And what they found was the rates of suicide were the very lowest. The baseline for the heterosexuals, no sexual activity was the very lowest. So they gave that a one. It's basically what they're comparing everything to. You go up to the next level of no sexual activity, but their same-sex attraction there, just that identity, you see a little bit heightened um, suicidality. You go to the next level, ironically, heterosexual sexual activity, you see an even higher rate of suicidality. So it's not even just the LGBT. It's engaging in sexual activity outside of the marriage, uh, the, the context of marriage. That increased the rate of suicidality. And then when you went to the same-sex uh, identified engaged in sexual activity, it was like whoosh, off the charts mm -hmm. for suicidality on that. Mm -hmm. So what this chart really showed us is the further you get away from God's design, you basically are entering this culture of death. And even in the most accepting society in the world, you're still seeing those numbers. So if we're still seeing those numbers in the most accepting society in the world, maybe it's not the acceptance of this practice, of this identity that is the problem. It's the fact that this kind of sexuality is going against God's design, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. Yes. It is going against God's design. And when you go against God's design, you do, you're not left with a feeling of peace and tranquility and wholeness, you are left feeling hopeless, which is what we're seeing with these suicidality rates. Interesting. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. And I think this would be a really good one to talk to kids about because you're saying, why would you want to encourage your friends to, to get on this train? Yeah. <laughs> this train that is basically the further away you get, the more likely they are to start contemplating suicide or attempt multiple times. In what way is love? Do you think that you're going to defy this? Do you think all these studies, do you think your friend's going to be the one friend? I mean, I'm granted there's probably some people who are living what they feel is very happy, fulfilled sexual activity, you know, in same-sex relationships. So it's like when we, when we deal with studies like this, we never deal with individuals. We're dealing with populations and generalities. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like it's predicted on a one-to-one. -one. But why would you want to push your friends towards something that is showing time and again is going to increase the amount of mental health issues? Right. Right. That's not love. Right. Yeah, no, I know. And it's so important. I'm thinking of also the reality to tell our kids that some of these things that, you know, your friends or whoever around you is going to be, a, you know, doing or practicing 
there is an actual element because I just, I didn't, I grew up not knowing Jesus. So mm-hmm. I, I think there's like a very real, to me, maybe this is so wrong. You can tell me, but <laughs> tell me if you like, not do this. I'll let you know. <laughs> I, I, I feel it's important to be honest with our kids about the fact that some of these things, whether it's sexual activity or drugs and alcohol or, I don't even know. I'm trying to think of things that binge eating or whatever, Mm -hmm. or whatever, um, take your pick actually can feel good in the moment. Oh yeah. They're very satisfying in the moment, but that's, that's still essentially what, what you have is something that's satisfying in a biblical way will continue to be satisfying in the same way. Um, I'll, I'm going to say something dumb with this, uh, but it's like, I think you can, uh, how many, how, how many, how who out there has like, you know what? I'm just tired of watching cats on the internet. <laughs> Nobody. We love watching cats on the internet, no matter what. It is just as entertaining every single time. It's like, it's not like we get tired of it and we're like, eh, I don't think I like cats anymore. Or I need more cats. Give me more cats. I got to watch cats all day. Nobody's getting addicted necessarily to cats on the internet because the amount of pleasure that it brings is a natural kind of pleasure that I think God, you know, put into us. And it doesn't just have to be cats. I, I go on my Instagram and I follow all these different things so I can see, you know, these elephants that have their own Instagram and stuff like that. And it brings me joy every single time. Um, and I don't feel like I'm now ignoring other parts of my life so I can watch more elephants and more hedgehogs <laughs> and more whatever. It's a very natural pleasure. Now, we are getting pleasure from sinful things. We are getting pleasure. It's like the, 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 um, the reason why people who are depressed have a tendency to then go into that binging phase is because they feel better, but then they feel worse about themselves. So then they need to eat more food and then they feel worse about themselves. And there's this escalating yes. behavior. So if we ignore that, this will work for a little while. Mm-hmm. It can be a bandaid. Um, if we say, Oh, you know, you're as soon as you do it, you're going to hate yourself. That's just not always the case. Um, it's one of those things that kind of has a slow delay of gratification yeah. to it. Not delay of gratification. What is, what is it called when you've, um, uh, it's where it's not as satisfying anymore. Like, um, what's that phrase? It's yeah, like not, uh, diminishing returns, diminishing returns, the law of diminishing returns that the more you get, the less pleasure you get out of it. I think, yeah, um, I think it's just so important that we are honest with our kids. Cause I think to an extreme, right? Like if there's like a pendulum or something mm-hmm. on one extreme, we can ease, we can be like, you know, here's all the things and all the reasons as to why this is not good and da 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 da. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. Head not I like I get that as a kiddo. I'm thinking, yep, okay. But then why did that thing feel so good or whatever? You know? Yeah. And so I I um, because temptation would never feel bad. No one's going out there being like, I really want to stub my foot on a rock, you know, or you know, something that feels bad. Right. But yeah, um, I think it's just important that our kids actually that they hear too that. Mm. here's the reality it's it does some of that it it does feel good but i love oh yeah i love what you said you did not say it exactly like this but the notes i'm taking you said god's good design stays good all the time mm-hmm. sin also feels good but only for a while and so yep. i think it's just so important that we say that because yeah. they're gonna experience that at some point in their life, some, some type of something we all do at some, whatever, right. Again, take your, take your pick, your phone, your coffee, your food, whatever. Um, and you're like, Oh, that felt good for a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's like to tell them, yeah, it, it, yep. 
but don't like, mm, you know, anyway, it just came to yep. mind as you were talking. So I'd love to talk about chapter three, a pretty, yes, a pretty great design <laughs> when followed how yes. gender, marriage, sex, and family show us the God we can't see. So let's dive into that. Mm. Yes, this was probably one of my favorite chapters to write on just because um, I like I, I can't remember if we talked about this before. I have a whole slew of health problems. So like having a nice, healthy, functioning body is not one of the ways that I've been blessed. But one of the ways that God has really, really blessed me is in healthy authority in my life. Mm-hmm. And that started with my father um, and then transferred very easily over to my husband, uh, where authority in my life, especially male authority, was never this idea of I'm using this to get my way um, or I'm using this so that um, I can just make things run smoothly for me or it's simpler. I have always seen with both my father and my husband, them taking their role of authority as a way of how do I cultivate Hillary or my father. It was, you know, my wife and Hillary and Leslie, my sister. Um, I watched my dad. he would just always pay attention to stuff that we needed or just things that were bothering us. Like I remember my mom talking about back when she worked with horses, how her back was hurting because she was always bending over doing picking the feet, you know, and the horses, which you have to do when you have horses. So he actually designed, he's hilarious. He designed this stool that could strap onto her so that she could like sit down. He would like strap onto her butt so she could sit down and do it. And then she could stand up instead of having to move the stool around. He was constantly, I mean, no, it was so adorable. I love him. Uh, He was constantly looking for ways to bless. And so when it came to, let's say, you know, blessing, blessing me and my sister, we didn't get designer anything. We did not go out and get anything we wanted. But when it comes to things that mattered, Hey, I really would like a, a book that helps me with the SAT, or I need some SAT training, or this this thing will help me out with uh, the class that I'm taking. Anything that would serve for our benefit, if it was within his means and it was good for us, he would do whatever he could to get it for us. Um, it wasn't just something that pleased us; it was something that was good for us. Uh, and he just sacrificed so much. I don't think I realized how much he sacrificed until he retired. And now I see him involved in so many clubs and so many activities and the, the word working and he does Gideon's and he does all these different things, all the things that he sacrificed for that whole time when, you know, he was, you know, my mom were raising us that he went to work. Sometimes I didn't even realize that he sometimes traveled an hour and 45 minutes to and from work and still was able to come out to some of our, you know, like events you know if my sister was in volleyball or soccer or I was cheerleading or something like that but he sacrificed for us and so it made it to where when my dad said no to something I didn't question it I didn't feel like he was being mean um, I always knew that he had a reason um, because I had a history of if it was good for me and it was within his means then he would do it and if he said no it, it either meant this is not good for you or this is not within our means um, I would say my husband is the same way. My my husband refers to me as his garden, like cultivating his garden. What is going to help me flourish best? What is going to help me uh, walk in the skills uh, that God has given me? My husband has a PhD. He has a, a double bachelor's, an MDiv, a THM, and a PhD. And he worked on a factory line 10 hours a day, five uh, five days a week for about four years. So, because he saw the Lord building Mama Bear Apologetics and he said, I've never seen God bless anything that I've done like that. So, I will do whatever we need to do 
to make you to make us financially uh, stable enough to where you can do this without having to worry about money. And that is what good authority looks like. Mm-hmm. Now, I think uh, when it comes to sex, we're looking at how does sex, how does gender, how does marriage, how, do, how does family, how do these all reflect the God that we cannot see? And this is one of the areas where I think that we haven't really been teaching kids about sexuality is how these are all meant to reflect who God is. Uh, the relationship between male and female, in fact, I think the greatest, um, the greatest part in here, I believe, let me see if I can find it, um, is uh, from a woman named Rachel Gilson. And uh, she talks about, she's someone, she has a, a book that's called, um, um, golly, uh, Born Again This Way. And she talks about, well, if I can't find it, that's fine. Uh, she talks about how um, my teaching copy usually has that flag for me. Um, in, in God's analogies, he, he is always the male and the church is always the female. It says that, you know, it's Christ and his bride. He is always the man. Uh, he always fills that role of the male and the church is always the part of the female. That you remove the male from the relationship and you actually remove the picture of God from this analogy, from this picture. You remove the female and you basically take the concept of the church. The only way to really reflect God's plan for what is meant to be with male and female is to have both of them, to have God and have the church. Now, she, she said this way more eloquently than I did. But in the, in the Mama Bear Apologetics first book, I, or wait, no, it was in this book. I, I, sorry, it was in this book. I said, it's not that we've even lost the concept of what sex means, but we've lost the concept of what meaning is in itself. Mm. The idea that something can have a transcendent, transcendent meaning that we did not create, that was imbued into that creation. Um, we are basically messing with God's ability to communicate things about himself to people who don't believe. And all of a sudden, like when I started understanding that, I think it was um, the book Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. Um, I think it was edited by John Piper. There's a, a part in there where it says that um, our sexuality, a good, healthy sexuality is intended um, to reflect our relationship with Christ and our knowledge of Christ. That if you introduce, introduce a distortion at either of those inter, uh, places, if you introduce a distortion of who God is, you will almost always introduce a distortion among someone's sexuality. But it works the other way. If you introduce a distortion in someone's sexuality, a lot of times you introduce a distortion in who God is. And these are things that we would like to say, hey, I'm going to have a true picture of who God is and have a distorted sexuality. That is one of those things that is not an option. I have seen so many people who have been um, strong Christians with a strong, healthy view of sexuality start going down another sexuality. And I've watched their view of God change. It's not something that is going to happen consciously. It is just something that happens. And of course, God would want to protect our sexualities as we see throughout scripture. This has always been the way that we've been set apart because if this is one of the ways that God is communicating with humanity, he's going to be very, very careful on how his image is communicated with people who don't know him. Mm. He's going to be very protective of that. Mm. And so I like talking to kids about this in the sense of like, if you have a boy who is, um, plays a sport and he has someone who is like a scouter for college coming out. What if he was sick that day and one of the other kids on the team who isn't a very good player says, 
Well, a scout's coming over to say, we'll call him Jason. Scout's coming out to say, see Jason. I'm going to put Jason's jersey on so the scout can scout me. He can see me and then I'll tell him, oh, you know, I'm someone else. How angry would, would Jason be if someone else replaced that representation of him to the scout? He would be furious. Yeah. Or so, okay, so or if, if you have an artist and someone um, basically submits something for, for college scholarship and someone else puts their name on it, they are now someone, someone else is taking their place and misrepresenting them. If that scout really doesn't like this stuff, they have now rejected your daughter from ever, from, from wanting to have anything to do with her and have her come to the college. They, the, the scout ha- will now reject your son because he saw an incorrect representation, one that he didn't think would have potential. That is essentially what we are doing to God. When we misrepresent who he is through sexuality that people say, I don't think I want to be involved with that God. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have just completely distorted his image in that sense in the presence of people to whom we are supposed to be representing God. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of, you know, as parents, if we don't understand God's design, if we haven't been experiencing the beauty, because I think that can be, that can play a huge part in this too, is like as parents, are we, can we truly say that our own walk, our own experience within marriage, our own experience within sexuality has been one that we even are excited to have our kids emulate. Like, do we even understand, like, have we experienced that for ourselves? If not, I just, I invite you to go down that process for yourself so that you can engage with your kiddos and other people's kiddos in a way that actually does reflect truth. Because I think, you know, it's easy to listen to this and be like, okay, yeah. But then when I go home, that's not what I'm living. I'm not living a beautiful marriage when it comes to authority or sexuality and, you know, XYZ is going on or whatever. Like, so if that's the case, that's your invitation to go on that journey. Um, yeah. Email us info at a wife like me.com, call a counselor, like go down that journey of becoming healthy and finding what true what is true in God's word, his mm-hmm. design, what he created us for, how he created us and go on that journey. So, um, yeah, I've had so many women contact me and say, I didn't realize how far my own sexuality within my marriage had deviated from God's design. And I feel like this has revolutionized um, my marriage, my, the sexuality within my marriage that I now understand this goodness. I understand how this is supposed to represent Christ because even within marriage, if men, if people are treating marriage as if um, I have all these pent up desires and as soon as I get married, boom, I can just like explode onto this person and just use them for all these pent up desires. There, there's another book called, um, oh golly, I'm drawing a blank. Um, Our Bodies Tell God's mm-hmm. Story, where he talks about how sexuality is basically a reciting of the marital vows in bodily form. So think about the things that you would have promised to your spouse on that wedding day. If your sexuality is not reflecting that self-giving, that love, that tenderness, that care, all of those things, if your sexuality isn't representing that, it is not reflecting that, you might not be reflecting that intended um, kind of bonding together of that is, is meant to be represented. And so sometimes people, even from that, can have a whacked out view of what the bride of Christ's relationship is with Christ because they see the way their husband react, uh, relates to them sexually, or they see um, the way they relate to their husband. Yeah. Uh, 
I think that, and, it's, and I'm going to say this especially for those who have experienced sexual trauma of some sort. And I'm going to just go ahead and out myself there for someone who's experienced sexual trauma. When I started really understanding the theology behind sexuality, um, it actually started healing mm. parts of my trauma when I started to understand what this was supposed to be and the beauty of sexuality. Because it's like when, when uh, sexuality is introduced to you in a traumatic way that does in no way represents the way Christ is with his church, you start seeing sex as awful. Yeah. And then when you start seeing sex as awful, that you, again, you can't help but have that go on to your view of God. Mm. This has actually been healing for me, mm-hmm. understanding the the purpose of sexuality within a marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just want to say this is especially for those, for the listeners out there who have experienced sexual trauma. Yeah, it's so needed because there are so many of us walking around with these wounds and it's it's in our, it's present day. And so many are like, not sure even how to deal with it, look at it, heal it, or are just not looking at it. So um, yeah. Again, this is an invitation for you to be able to come into a place with the Lord where you're like, wow, Lord, thank you. Like, I'm going to work through this. I'm going to move through this. And so that I'm going to help our kids be able to live this out, experience it for themselves and believe it to be true and that it's possible for them. And um, I think that's the biggest thing I took away from the book is like, I want to give our kids a picture of the beauty that's possible and um and like keep reminding them of that and then like again like modeling that for them and man that's beautiful like oh so um yeah hillary thank you do you want to share any last thought or anything with us before i'll I'll ask you to pray for the wives too before we're done yeah Absolutely. So I would say that one of the most confusing things we have as people in the church with these issues, especially when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues, is um, people get confused as to how we stand up for that while remaining loving and gracious. And I would say one of the things that we need to do is to emulate how Jesus worked, which was when he was speaking to crowds, like people think of the Sermon in the Mount, they think of all the blessed is this, blessed is that. And they're like, oh, it's like this, as my pastor used to say, he's just a mild mannered man telling other mild mannered men to be more mild mannered. No, that is not the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the biggest boomstick you've ever met, where it's like, if you even look at someone with lust, you've committed sexual immorality, you know, you've committed adultery. It is very, he does not mince words and he does not reduce shame, shall we say, from the Sermon on the Mount. So when he's teaching to large crowds um, about what God's laws are, he's very, very unashamedly. um, Correct. Yeah, direct. Very, very direct. Very, very clear. He doesn't go into any of the nuance. When he deals with individuals, he always deals with the person first. And that's where he has that, that compassion and that love and that kindness. And so I think the church has gotten this backwards that they think that when we are talking to a large scale, that's where we express all this loving and compassion and um, kindness and nuance and stuff like that. Or you have the other ones that are confused that when they deal with individuals, they just want to bring God's law and make sure that person knows that, you know, they're going to hell. And this is not the way he modeled for us. He modeled being very clear to the crowds and he modeled a relationship with the individual. So if we think of people 
who are maybe held captive to these ideologies, we need to think of them as captives, not always as rebels. And so that will change the way that we react with them. And we need to make sure that we're not doing either of those two things, either being too nuanced and and so kind that we make Jesus look hateful to the crowds. And we need to make sure that uh, we're we're treating people like the woman at the well. I mean, Jesus knew she she was caught in adultery. Um, what she needed at that point wasn't someone to be like, you know, adultery is sin. She knew adultery was sin. What she needed was someone to take her shame. Yes. Um, and so we don't take the shame from the culture. We take the shame from individuals. Yeah. Well, it's, and we, pre- yeah, it's yeah. so good. I just recently interviewed Charles Fay. He is the mm-hmm. uh, president of Love and Logic. And he and a co-author have raising mentally strong kids. He Mm. was saying that the, as parents, he was just talking about different parenting styles, but the, it reminds me of what you just said, that all this research shows that the best, most effective parent parenting style is a loving yet firm parenting style. So it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like we know that, but same thing. It's like, can we not be truthful in a loving way. I think it's yeah. so, I mean, we see, you know, but I love that individual versus the, the crowd. That's so true. And, um, it helps us to, when we're thinking about this with our own kids, with whoever, um, to really consider that and to seek to build relationship. And it's yeah. so good. It's so good. Oh, Hillary, yeah. ladies. Okay. Go get the book. Go get the book, Mama Bear Apologetics Guide to Sexuality, Empowering Your Kids to Understand and Live Out God's Design. Seriously, go get it. It's linked below. Um, You can get this for other gals in your life. Start a small group, have it at your church, whatever. It's amazing. So, and if you have... I would say the best way to go through this is to go through it together because one of the awesome things, especially figure out who your kids' friends are, their closest friends. And get all the moms to do it together. That way, no matter whose house they go to, they're like, oh, we were talking about this today. They're getting it at every single house that they go to. Yes. And I read through it with a lens of do what I, I think I want my daughter to read this. She's, um, she's yeah. a very mature 14 year old. Um, yes. And I totally like, she'll love it. She'll probably read it in like a day. So anyway, um, <laughs> thank you for your obedience again. Please, Hillary, would you mind praying for all the wives? Absolutely. Oh, Father God, I thank you so for, so much for this ministry. I thank you for the women out there, the wives and the mothers, Father God. Lord, we come to you just uh, confessing that our culture has just gotten such a perversion of what your sexuality was intended to be, Lord. So right now, I pray that you bring healing. You would bring release from shame. I pray that you would bring uh, gentle conviction for those who are needing it, Lord, and just a desire to walk in health and fullness, Lord, within their sexual, uh, within their sexuality. Father God, I pray that you would um, bring opportunities as we are learning new things to, to be teaching our kids in the moment, Lord God. I pray that uh, every time the ladies here learn something new, there would be something where they could put that new knowledge into action, Lord. I call it the the learning portion, the, the lab or the lecture portion versus the lab portion, Lord, that you are so faithful not to bring too much onto us too soon, but uh, you are so faithful to bring those kind of opportunities to put into practice what we're learning. So we pray that you would graciously be bringing those um, 
for those, Lord, who are in marriage, who are in hurting, who have not had a wonderful view of what authority is meant to be, Lord. I pray that you would comfort them with the words in this of understanding what a godly authority looks like, Lord, and that they would know that they could always turn to you to know what that beautiful authority looks like. I pray that you protect them from any bad misuses of authority in their lives, that it would not bleed over onto their concept of you, Lord. Um, just because so many things in our life were meant to point us when they are done well. A great design when followed is meant to point to you, Father God. Um, we pray that uh, if there are any spiritual strongholds in their kids' lives or in their home, Lord, that they would just be starting out on their knees, God, asking for you to bring your spirit in and to just be discipling them and leading them the way that they need to go, Lord, in order to begin healing on this very, very important topic. In your name I pray. Amen. 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 Oh, Hillary, thank you so much. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you for spending time with us and um, just appreciate you. And go get the book, everyone. It's linked below. (laughs) Appreciate you. I'm sure we'll be chatting again because you have another new book coming out. So we'll be chatting. Mm -hmm. So yay. Okay. Sounds good. Hillary. Bye, everyone. Bye.